Hello and welcome to Trendy Ways to Die, the show where we explore how the Christians were right all along. Heavy metals are a menace. <laughs> and today I am joined by my dear friend and all-around smarter, funnier, and better person than me, Jackie. And we're going to be discussing one of my favorite historical ways to die, and that's mercury. Uh, mercury in general has been used as a medicine, curiosity, and technology for thousands of years, but specifically we are going to discuss how it was used as a rather ineffective medical remedy for syphilis and other STIs. And this actually happened way later in history than you might think. So hey Jackie, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining. Well, thanks for having me. I, I should make you re-record that though, because I would posit that I, I don't think it's fair to say that I'm smarter, funnier, and all around whatever you said compared to you. You're oh, the best. That's, that's so kind of you, really. But I also have like a little bit of a complex. Like I love the self-deprecation. So don't worry. It is truly generationally appropriate. So I, I right there with it you. It is. Um, you know, I know that I'm really great. Well, good. Cool. <laughs> so Jackie, you have like public health background. So that's why another reason why I say that you're smarter than me and like more informed on this. Because I just recently began sneezing in my elbow. So, like, that's my level. Yeah, so how did, how did you come to know about this topic? Well, it's sort of odd. It's a funny story. Um, in college, my, my degree is in history of science, which is a sort of bizarre major that is not all that common. Um, so over the course of, of, you know, going through college, I took a lot of different really weird history and science classes that sort of overlapped, um, but always was very interested in sexual health. Um, I was a pure health educator when I wasn't in class. So I spent a lot of time like teaching people how to use condoms and like what a dental dam is and um, how to just be safe on a college campus, which is surprisingly... Honestly, the Lord, like the Lord's work. Like, thank you so much for from day one. Like, I don't know. I feel like there's a stereotype that college students are very, like, gung-ho about sexuality and everything. But, like, me at 18, I was, like, so prudish that I would have never had the courage to do what you did. And not only that, to, like, fully study it. So, anyway, that's cool. I, yeah, I was in a pretty similar boat, actually. I, um, I was pretty prudish coming into college as well. And it was definitely, like, bizarre, not only to, to like learn about some things to teach them to other kids, but also the things that people had never heard. Because as listeners to your podcast probably know, um, the United States is not very good at sexual education. Uh, it's, it's not a thing that a lot of kids get. And in fact, a lot of schools aren't allowed to teach anything other than abstinence only uh, because it's part of their grant process. So like they can't get federal funds um, if they if they teach real sex ed. So um, it's <laughs> it's kind of abysmal, the, the stuff that people didn't know, uh, which, you know, kind of gets into what we're talking about here, because, like, um, you know, it, sex education has always been kind of a crapshoot. Uh, and I was interested in that. So my senior thesis for, for school was about uh, sex education films, specifically ones that targeted your average everyday American kids mm -hmm. and then the ones that targeted the military which are very, very different. Totally, yeah. And I can imagine, like, these being some of the first real, like, sustained campaigns, like, you know, post-progressive era stuff where the government is really getting out there and saying, we're going to give you the science on, on what this is, even though, you know, the science wasn't, wasn't very developed. I mean, something... Totally, I, totally. I don't have any dates for this, and I really should, but, like, 
I read an article recently, like on the timeline of like knowledge of female anatomy, just like in general, like what's going on. Oh, and yeah, it wasn't people until, still don't know as much as we should. Yeah, like you know, the late '60s is like when we actually learned about like you know different arrangements within the body. I sound like I'm not knowledgeable. Um, <laughs> I, I I'm a little bit knowledgeable, but uh, you know, I'm also very modest, so I don't want to talk about. It. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah. I it's kind of wild how little study went into a lot of this stuff. Um, but also just, I think what the government thought the average American needed to know was not that much. So um, if you think about it, like, the the programming of people in this country was so tied to, like, that picket fence thing we picture of, like, you're gonna have your your spouse and your 2.5 children and your dog, mm -hmm. and um, so you don't really need to know about sexual health because you'll be married. Um, right. Which is really a pernicious and incorrect idea. Yeah, because married folks are just perfect at doing all this stuff, and unmarried people never have sex. It's just like I said in the first episode of this podcast, you know, when doctors were first told in the 1800s that they had to wash their hands prior to surgery, they refused to do that because, quote, gentlemen's hands are always clean. You know, before science actually you know, takes hold, other social mores take precedence. And under that logic, you know, why would we need to learn about sex if we've been doing it the way God intended for, for thousands of years since the beginning? Totally. It's obviously silly to think that teenagers are not going to be having sex. Um, like, they have been since the dawn of time. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, actually, there's really interesting research now into, you know, the Puritans, who we think of as being very repressed, but, like, were very aware of and down with teen sexuality because, like, uh, you know, they couldn't stop it. And if you know for sure that your partner can have kids that's a good thing in an era where you need to have a lot of children to work your mm. farm so like it, the way that sexual mores have changed over the years is, is sort of interesting but specifically in like the 1940s um the idea that like women have to be gatekeepers and very pure and no sex before marriage um and so thus they don't need to know about sex at all really like you maybe need to know about your menstrual cycle and that's it um, is very hammered home and men get a really different story um, because like you have urges you just can't control right, of course um, <laughs> so we have to just sort of like you know accept that as a fact um, and interestingly the reason that the army cared so much is that uh, they knew that if their soldiers got VD venereal disease at the time is what they would have called it now we would call it an STI mm -hmm. um, then you can't fight as effectively so, and that's, that's historically always been a problem, right? Like, armies are always fucking, and when they do that, I probably shouldn't have said armies are always fucking, huh? That's, that's a I know, I mean, like, I love the radical, the radicalism of that in a way. I mean, it's true. It's something that you don't think about. They don't show that part in, you know, whatever massive war blockbuster there is, you know? Right, it's not in Captain America. Um, although, I guess it kind of is a little bit, like, they sort of cheekily hint at this, but, like, those those fictional Marvel soldiers, right, they would have been getting very intensive sex education about, um, A, like, the, the message would have been, please do not have sex with women wherever you're stationed. Right. Like, right. lots of propaganda about how they might look clean and nice, but they're actually riddled with disease. This is why I feel like there's so much room in sci-fi to talk about all this stuff. And, you know, I'm not, like, a prolific sci-fi reader, so there's probably stuff about this that exists. But all these war fantasies and, like, intergalactic fantasies that happen are just, like, simplistic mirrorings of the same stories that we've encountered in the past. Like, you know, when syphilis came to England in the 1600s from the Americas, 
probably. Like, that's the story that I want to know. Like, you know, why, if there are dudes and, and ladies going up having these lovely sexual encounters with the Martians, then how do we deal with the public health implications? You know? <laughs> Thank you. Like, Hollywood, I'm, I'm available, you know? Yeah, get that get that money, honey. Yeah, I I think that there's something really interesting to be said for those narratives. I unfortunately, I think that it's probably less like the lovely encounters with the margins and more like the forcible right. Like, right, rape of, of the margins. Mm-hmm. Um which is probably how syphilis came, you know, to Europe via the Columbian Exchange. It was probably like Columbus's men raped some people and then brought back yeah, a different set of germs. But like yeah, I, warfare is so tied to sex, and sex is so tied to diseases. It's like the easiest way to to share germs with someone is to get your fluids all mixed together. Yeah, and the thing that I love about this conversation is that we're bringing together all these areas of you know taboo and mystery, sexuality, warfare, passion, exotic places, and you know when you combine that with early medical science, ways to die just flourish. Um, So it's cool that we're talking about syphilis because this is actually one of the first areas that I had heard that mercury was used as a treatment, you know, in in Tudor England in the 1600s, when that disease came over probably from the New World. Although mercury has technically been used as a cosmetic, pharmaceutical, and just general curiosity since ancient times. So so Jackie, tell me about how you got to mercury, syphilis the army. Sure. So basically, um, mercury makes sense if you're thinking about how you want to treat STIs because it's poisonous. I think for so, for so long, everyone was like, ooh, drugs, they should try to kill you too. Like, and that's kind of still how some of our, our big medicines work today, right? Like, that's what chemotherapy is. Yeah. Um, and also, if you think about what mercury looks like, it's so cool. Like, I could totally see how you would see elemental mercury and say, like, that's got to be magical. It it interacts with your skin in a weird way like it looks amazing uh why would you not want to rub it all over your your penis to prevent yourself from getting sick because it'll kill you because yeah it'll it'll (laughs) definitely kill you either quickly or slowly i also love the i love the old name for mercury which is quicksilver yeah uh which i just think you know i love like the old english words that are a lot more like visceral than these like roman loan words like mercury but like quicksilver it's so evocative comes from mysterious rocks and it has weird properties and uh we spread it on our junk (laughs) in the form of a beautiful salve yeah it's it's kind of interesting to think about syphilis in particular is such a scary disease if you don't have penicillin because it can affect anybody it can be passed down to your kids without you knowing it and it has very very bad congenital syphilis is a terrible disease to get uh it will really mess your life up or kill you um and between the phases of syphilis, you are pretty un- asymptomatic. So you can pass it on to a lot of people and never know that you've done that. Uh, you can think that you're cured, which I think is probably what happened for most of the people who had syphilis for a very long time, is that you that chancre goes away and you're like, oh, cool, down to clown. Um, but you're not down to clown. You are still very, very full of a disease that will kill you by making you literally lose your mind eventually. Terrifying. Yeah, and such an element of all these horrible diseases is this this sort of undetectability and infectiousness. You know, right now we're in this pandemic where that's a huge deal, yes. but it was also a huge deal, you know, during the early days of HIV. And, you know, because these things are so often dormant and fickle, it's really hard for us to establish cause and effect. 
So anyone can get them, anyone can transmit them, but people with money can afford to cover up their symptoms and engage in, in good treatments or quack treatments, while the public people, the people who die in public, um, tend to be poor and foreigners and people of color. So therefore, we're really ready to shame those people. And a big part of our culture is identifying disease with moral failing. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that that led to a lot of the the big problems with treating a disease like syphilis is that if you're assuming that it's for the lower classes or it's for soldiers and it's okay if they get it because, you know, um, like what's, you know, boys will be boys, which has always mm -hmm. been, you know, a shitty argument, but there it is. Um, you really forget like the, the terrible human impact of all those people bringing disease back home and giving it to everybody. Um, like you even think about, um, so Queen Victoria's husband, Albert, his younger brother died of syphilis. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, Ernst was his name. And the reason I know that is actually because um, there's a, a masterpiece miniseries about Victoria that I watched. I will be so into that. It's great. You should watch it. The costumes are delightful. And, um, oh, what's the actor's name? Anyway, he has a really funny mustache. Yeah, so he's, he's like, taking Mercury on the show. So they depicted that pretty well, actually. Um, it's not effective. It doesn't work. It just it just makes you like sicker in a way that feels effective. It's kind of like when people get really into like the the latest diet fad mm -hmm. or um they try P90X for the first time and they're like, "Yes. This feels like death. I'm better." Um yeah, like there's nothing better than like feeling the burn really hard, but in this case, the burn is going to kill you. And and mercury poisoning is in a lot of ways kind of similar to tertiary syphilis, the third phase where your brain starts to really like disintegrate almost literally. Mm -hmm. So what what I find interesting is that the the cure really mapped onto exactly how the disease progressed in this case. Right. So it's sort of a case of confirmation bias. You know, if if the patient goes dormant, it must be the mercury. But if he or she dies, it was just too little or too late. Um, which I guess explains why this was in medical textbooks into the 40s and 50s. Yeah, and I mean, I think the other thing that's interesting is that it, the like germ theory took so long, so long to figure out. Um, and it makes sense, right? You can't see it with the naked eye. So understanding that it's a tiny, a tiny bacterium or virus that's making you sick is really that that doesn't make any sense to anyone until you really start to look at how these things work. So um, it's harder to figure out what a treatment is. If you if you can't figure that out, that also sort of ties in with stuff like cholera, where it's a bacteria that gives you the disease. But if you're healthy on a baseline, you won't get sick. So learning how medicine works is it's crazy that we are where we are. And a lot of it is because of wars as well. So it's not just these things like we're talking about sexual health because we have to, you know, face the fact that these young men are off having a lot of sex. Um, so we better give them condoms. We better tell them how to use them. But it's also like, oh, um, there's a new gas that's like wrecking people's lungs. I guess we have to figure out how to treat that. Like, oh, um, we have bombs that are causing a lot of amputations and um, traumatic brain injuries. I guess we better learn how to treat them. Or like pretty much any any huge advancement in medicine has been tied to violence or sex. Yeah, it's you really start to realize that all of modern medicine is just like our our jerry rigged attempt to keep humanity going. Yes. Like, because we keep, it's not like, I'm not like a war defender being like, we should do war because it will help us advance. But like, we wind up doing horrible and awful things to ourselves. And then we wind up healing them. The Civil War, railroads, hello, like massive investment. I was just talking before about 
uh, the decline of really restrictive Victorian fashion. And a lot of that happened because of World War One. And, you know, you couldn't be wearing girdles and, and high neck collars into battle in the era of machine guns. Gotta, gotta be loose. Gotta get loose to get in the trench. Yeah. I mean, I... Gotta get loose, but not, not too, too loose, because then you get then you get yeah, right exactly or gonorrhea. The, I think the um, the big scourge of like World War Two is the clap. That's the one that everyone talks about, um, mm-hmm. and actually, it's making a comeback right now, which is really upsetting um, and becoming drug resistant. So wear a condom, kids. Um, if you are having sex with someone where a penis is involved, you should wear a condom. Say it again for the, for the people in the back. Wear a condom. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it, but you can do it. I'm, yeah. I'm always here to yell at people to wear a condom, even during blowjobs with someone that you don't know. I guess sex is just the trendiest way to die, you know? Oh, it's not really a trend. It's more of like a pillar of our existence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A little bit too much. That's a bit of a galaxy brain thought for this. Sex. It kills you eventually. Yeah, man. Life itself is a sexually transmitted disease. Oh. Whoa. I'm 27 and I live in my parents' basement. <laughs> cool. So the shocking thing is that you know, the U.S. military, the same military that, you know, we hold in really, really high esteem historically in this period. I mean, okay, right. In this period. In, in this period. Yeah, right. Like, yes. I'm talking about, like, yes. if you can think of, like, the most... And this is obviously a, a symptom. Symptom. I shouldn't say symptom. A result of the fact that, you know, World War II censorship was so intense in the United States. And also we were not involved for a very long period of time relative to the European powers. But, you know, this this was like a top-of-the-line professional organization that many people still revere, and they were recommending that their young men who had been sexually active spread mercury-infused creams all over their junk. And I understand that you have a media representation of this that I we're going do. to watch. Yeah, um, so this is actually, it's it's a publicly available uh, archive footage from Army Sex Ed Films that I watched as part of my thesis. Um, the entire the entire film is actually really interesting, and I will also send you, Julian, some additional resources for other films that are really fun. There's a great one called USS VD, Ship of Shame, that is a personal oh, favorite. I, I watched that one, I watched that one in college, and I really do, I really do like it. Yeah, it's good. Um, but this this one that we're going to watch um, is is targeted specifically at men who are entering the army. And it's it's very down to brass tacks, educational, like when you have sex with someone while you're on shore leave, like here's how you use the condom. And they're not actually the way that we think of condoms today. They're much larger. Um, blousey. They look more like. The, yeah, they're blousey almost. And they were made to like be almost reusable, which is kind of disgusting. Um, and the idea was that you were supposed to like test the condom out before you use it. So you're supposed to like fill it with water and check for leaks and then lube it up and then use it. Like sounds like the most uncomfortable thing I can possibly imagine. Like you're making a face right now that is the face I think I made when I watched this it film. Just, it just seems a bit unsanitary. You know, germ theory is really embedded in my head as a modern person. I just wonder what they'll say about my own hygiene habits, sexual or otherwise, you know, in a thousand years. Are they going to laugh at me for not irradiating my silverware or using like a force field condom or something? I think so. I think some of it as well is like, this is clearly, they they didn't know a ton about how to treat a lot of this stuff because like penicillin wasn't really a big thing yet. That wasn't until like the mid 40s and this is a little earlier so they don't yet have a really good antibiotic so the best option that they have is 
take this giant plastic bag, make sure it doesn't have a hole in it, and then when you come back to base, step one is not go tell your buddies about your hookup. It's report to the medical bay, strip, wash yourself thoroughly with this mercury soap, and then we're going to do the next thing, which I, do you want me to talk about that or should we just react to the video? Oh, I can't wait to watch I this. love it. Try to go to right to 20. Um, It's like a little, it's halfway through like the soldier has returned from a sexual encounter thing, but it's like the, so the narrator has just said something like you must do these things as, as quickly as possible. And he's about to talk about what you have to do when you get back to base. Awesome. So uh, let's play in three, two, one and just emote, react, however, however you'd like to. I will okay, do the same. Sounds good. All right, three, two, one, click. Okay, washing of the hands, soap and water. I also just love the way they're like, come to the prophylactic station. Yeah, the venereal prophylaxis room. This man is just, he just walked in there and he is just stripping. Like there were no, there were no words exchanged. And the other guy's just taking notes about something and I don't know what the notes he's taking are. Also, look at this sink, JD. It's a sink with a specific butt pad attached to it where you sit, and yeah, he's washing his washing his junk. And the other guy is just like, no, you missed a spot. Further up on the scrotum, young man. Yeah, this is being observed, like, very closely. If I were a soldier, I would not want to do this. No, I wouldn't Like, either. I would watch this video and be like, gross, no. There we go. Here's your mercury. Okay, so he's... The clothed person is, is putting a dropper yeah, in a jar. Is... It's dark. It's, like, blackish. Yep. Yep. Oh my god. Yep. That can oh my god, that is not Okay, so he's he has like a plunger and he's plunging it directly into the Yep. Urethra. And then he's supposed to like pinch it and hold it in. Now I don't have a penis, so I cannot speak to whether this would be uncomfortable, but I can't imagine that it wouldn't be. I think it would be. I think I, it would if be. only because there's gotta be a fair amount of pressure to to put that amount of liquid in. You could get yeah. gas in there, which would be really uncomfortable. So basically, okay, so they pump in they pump in the mercury solution, and then he basically has to hold it within his penis for a few minutes and then pees it out. Yep. And yep. And now we're getting an authoritative looking general kind of speaking at us, telling us this is a good idea. Yeah, and this is the guy who's been um teaching this whole class. Um so basically the idea is that like this is the conceit of this video is like a group of young men learning from this old man um in a lecture hall. Uh, so you might, we made a cuts. Yeah, here we are. So it's just these young men, like. Yeah, they're in a classroom. Yeah. And looking they're all very thrilled handsome. to be there. Yeah, and they're all very handsome and clean cut. And you'll notice, too, that these are all, like, white people, um, which is notable. To be listened to, so it has to be white. Yes, exactly. That's kind of the main, the main exciting part of this video. Um. We can stop it. Um, I just stopped mine. So, so let's just have a little moment to react like <laughs> i mean so here's what's what strikes <laughs> me about this video right this young man um now presuming that any person ever would actually do this because like i would see this video and then never report to the prophylactic study room like absolutely not i'm not like washing my genitals in front of three strangers while one of them injects some horrifying substance in like into my yeah. body. I'm not doing that. Um, but also notice notable is that no, we don't know what's happening. There's no contact tracing. So we don't know what's happening with his sex partner, whoever he or she was. So that person could just, you know, have disease out there in the yeah. world. Uh, 
I guess it's so I we didn't see the whole video, but is it just is it assumed? Do they like go to the scene of the crime? Is it assumed that she's of color and not, you know, for, like a foreign woman or who is this partner? Well, so in this video, I don't, I'm trying to remember and, and not mix the, the videos up because I've seen quite a few of these. Um, in this one, I don't think we go to the scene of the crime. Actually, so in a lot of the videos, they they specifically tried to show female sex partners who were like clean cut white American women. Um, and the reason that they did that was that uh, there's an assumption that is obviously like very deeply inherently racist that um, a white clean cut, maybe well to do woman is less likely to have a sexually transmitted infection than a woman of color or someone who's um, less economically well off. So you want to try and like explain that anybody can have venereal disease. Uh, so that's why they use like the, the fanciest possible person. So like in, in the movie USS Feedy Ship of Shame, the um, one of the young men gets gonorrhea from his, I think, long term girlfriend who had been previously engaged and she got it from her, her um, you know, dead ex-fiance who was a sailor so like they they went through all these hoops to show that even like the most respectable nice young woman could also have vd um you know that's that's actually that's so good of them to do that in this era because even today we struggle with this like i always go back to the hiv response so many people thought at the time or even think now that they are immune because they think, oh, it only happens to gay people or, or people of color or just men. And that's sort of true. I mean, the risk level is very different for those groups. But the internalized belief from that is that, oh, it's not my problem. I don't have to care about it. And we shouldn't have permission to do that. And in many cases, we still think of STIs and all diseases as a lower class issue. A hundred percent. I think victimhood and who we who we're perceived to care about and who the people teaching these things think we should care about makes an enormous difference in what you learn. Um, and this this is just a great example of it. It's also one of those things where preventing STIs wasn't considered an important thing until we had this fighting force of young men who could get laid out and be unable to fight in the war that was important for them to fight in, right? So it's not as much that they cared about the sexual health of these young men because it was the right thing to do. They cared because if they got sick, it would be a drain on our war machine. Yeah. Um, oh, that reminds me of, this is the, the worst thing that America does, and we do it all the time, is saying, like, you know, by helping people with homelessness, you know, you could save $20 million over 10 years. Or, you know, like, sure, it's expensive to buy the medicine, but it's more expensive to have this person taking up services. That's why they can they can charge, like, hundred thousand dollars for the hep c vaccine and i uh -huh. hate that yeah. and uh it's deeply messed up it's it's all these um these ideas of like who deserves to have our care and why we care about the people we care about and it's very intrinsically linked to how you know capitalism works and how our country has worked since the beginning of time right like um it's it's very apparent the more you think about it uh who who matters as a society yeah. and this is just a great example um to the extent that like putting condoms into the like rations that soldiers got was a thing that happened right so you got like your your meal ready to eat you got your cigarettes you get your chocolate and you get your condom 
And because they were, like, in the kits, that helped the process of, like, the country learning how to do vulcanized rubber, which is critical to, like, a lot of stuff that we did, because they were like, we need to make better condoms. Because before this, they were made out of sheepskin, right? Which isn't actually, like, a great material for yeah. a prophylactic. Neither, neither is vulcanized rubber, to be honest. Like, especially <laughs> in the 40s. Like, tires okay yeah um wait till you see the, the picture of what that what that condom looked like it, it really is it does not look appealing in any way shape or form but hey it's more appealing than syphilis so that's i guess true. that's that's true a win low bar i will i will link that in the description so jackie <laughs> now that we've reacted tell us um how did we get here you know how did we get to this point where the u.s government is recommending mercury uh, we've talked a lot about sort of the social trends and things that that got us to this video but I don't know, what's the sort of history of the science? Well, basically the history of the science is they kind of didn't have a better option. So they knew that mercury has, you know, very, very, very limited um, antibiotic properties. And I yeah. say very, very, very limited because it's very, very, very limited. Um, but penicillin wasn't a thing yet. Um, the other things that we had to treat infection weren't super reliable. And so the best possible option was, well, okay, I guess we'll do this thing that we've been using to treat syphilis um, mm -hmm. that we know kind of works. I mean, big swishy air quotes, because it, it really doesn't. But if you have nothing to offer other than, like, a giant trash bag of a condom, um, you might as well use this soap that has mercury in it. Um, it'll feel like something's happening. Something probably pretty painful, let's be real. Um and I think actually they, they also had some other things that were somewhat effective. So like iodine is kind of in the same boat where it kind of works a little bit. It's not as effective for sure as something like a penicillin. Um, and I think that was probably mixed into that like dark brown liquid that we saw being injected into the urethra. Um, so it's like if you put a little bit of many antibiotic things, it, it should sort of do the trick. I actually suspect that the main point of this film that we just watched was less like here is the thing that we expect to do on a lot of people. This is like the procedure that we're going with. I think it was more trying to scare people into not having sex. So it's like, Oh, that's brilliant. If, yeah. If you go off base and hook up with someone, um, even that pretty French girl with the nice baguette, um, that was a mixed metaphor. Uh, you're going to have to come back to base and do this humiliating, painful thing in front of people. And we're going to take notes and it's going to be real embarrassing. Um, so maybe you just won't have sex. Do we think that worked? Absolutely not. It's the threat of hell. It's the threat of hell on Earth. Hell in the venereal disease ward. Like, we're going to do this thing that is so... Like, my jaw dropped. I'm sure that in the theater in 1940, the jaws were dropping as well, saying, oh, wow, like, all these, these women don't look so good anymore. I mean, I think that must have been their hope. And what's interesting is that is still, I think one of the main tactics that is used in sex education, and I say that with big swishy air quotes, um, in a lot of parts of the country today, right? So it's instead of um, you're going to have to get your urethra injected with the weird chemicals, it's um, you're going to get pregnant, and it's targeted at women, not at men. Um, because I think that they learned through sort of, you know, trial and error that, like, a lot of times people don't really care about if they get STIs, because it doesn't feel that immediate. It doesn't feel that scary. Um, so you might as well just, and you're, and you might die, right? So like, why not have sex? If you're a young woman and your life might be ruined forever, that's a lot scarier than I might get 
like a cold, which is what I think a lot of people thought gonorrhea right. was. Right. So it's sort of like, um, you know, it's the equivalent of, you know, we, we've all had this harm reduction kind of baked into our educa- self-educations, limited educations, where, you know, hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you've been told or have read, like, this is the safe way to have sex. The safe way to have sex, meaning you can. Or if you do, yes. you, you, you could. But this is from an even earlier, like, lens where that lens is um you know if you do this you're bad and this is what's going to happen to you it's the more like scared straight approach like the just say no approach like yes it's totally it's the dare version of sex ed um and i i think that the harm reduction version is is the gold standard for a reason and it's because sexual urges are very normal and healthy and uh, like a lot of people may most people experience that um scared straight doesn't really work if it's something that like people want more than they're scared of it so yeah i i i think that that was what they really thought was going to work in this era um but it doesn't and it didn't uh which is why you see all these stories about people getting venereal disease while they're fighting wars also why you hear all these stories of people um fathering children while they're fighting wars and why you have these populations of kids born in all of the foreign theaters during world war ii uh to american gis uh it's it didn't work people still fucked fun fun um you you want another mercury story that i have i I realized this as i was doing some background for this episode please do tell me about another another great mercury story so this is weird. Um, I I come from a small town in New Hampshire, um, and growing up, like, had a weird fear of mercury for, like, a thing that is not really, something you're not likely to interact with. Um, How did you know about it? Well, I realized that uh, very famously, there was a researcher at Dartmouth who died of mercury exposure in, I think, 1997, and it was such a big national news story that I think a lot of people my age from my area, like, weirdly remember it. Um, she was doing heavy metals research, and her uh, glove had a tear or something, and she got exposed, and they did all the treatments they could, but, like, caught it too late, and she passed away. It's, like, so scary, so intense, weirdly imprinted on my psyche as a child. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, um, I didn't really have that much... Uh contact with mercury i mean i knew it was in thermometers i saw pictures of it but i never actually saw it in front of me i think if i if i did it would be it would be fascinating it would have been fascinating to me a lot of people thought that it was my dad actually so in guatemala where he grew up he recently told me i was telling him that i was researching this episode and he said oh yeah i used to play with mercury (laughs) like we they they had mercury there for some reason i didn't really ask him where he got it from but he's like yeah my my grandmother had a little dish of mercury and i would play with it in my hands What's crazy is, um, despite the thing I just told you about my hometown, um, when I was in high school, my chemistry teacher brought out mercury and played with it in front of us and like let us hold it in a gloved hand mm-hmm. if we wanted to. And it's a really good segue because it's sort of like, how does mercury go from curiosity and the symptoms of mercury poisoning so broad that they are like a cultural trope to it's a national news story when a heavy metals researcher dies from mercury exposure? So, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. I can I can give you a little bit of research, uh, inadequately researched. Totally, yeah. Yeah, so, tell me about um, this. Basically, Mercury, it's unique because it is definitely beautiful, and it is 
a liquid metal at room temperature, which is just super cool. It flows around like metal. Um, and it's actually not that hard to make. So the way that it's made is through melting cinnabar, which is basically a name for a rock. Uh, you know, a rock is a is a thing that contains many different minerals, and one of the minerals is mercury. And the mercury crystals in the rock actually give it a bit of a red tinge. So it could be sandstone, it could be any other numbers of different kinds of rock. I'm not a geologist. Geologists, please don't come for me. <laughs> um, but it's pretty common, and you can find it all over the place in the hills of like Italy and Greece and Spain, as well as all over the world in China, in basically anywhere you have kind of like a rocky, hilly area. And the way that you make it is by melting the rock. And because mercury is liquid at room temperature, if you melt the rock away, then the first thing to sort of drip out is mercury. And if you melt the rock fully, then it sort of rises to the top. And, you know, if you have a kiln in your backyard, you can do this. And it's a pretty good, since ancient times, side hustle for peasants to harvest cinnabar, you know, when they can, and either use the mercury for their own little medicine woman or, or medicine man pursuits, or sell it, sell it on. And uh, that's how it essentially, you know, it's a rare material, but it's an accessible rare material. You know, all the rare earth metals that are in our phones, for instance, you know, these are extremely hard to extract, extremely hard to find. Mercury is not that hard to find. Uh, you could you could probably go hiking, find some cinnabar if you were in the right country and make it yourself if you have if you have some coal. Wow, that's crazy. And yeah, naturally, people have been using it forever. I mean, in ancient Egypt, there's some evidence that it was used as a cosmetic. Hmm. You know, you, you could mix it up with fat and it would give you a nice shiny under eye shimmer. You know, putting putting it near your eye is, of course, a horrible, horrible idea. <laughs> but I bet um, they looked fabulous, though. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah, I bet. I mean, maybe not. I mean, by the standards of the day. That's true. You know? Yeah. I mean, nowadays we can have actual glitter. So and, you know, plastic is not necessarily as bad, though. Eye glitter is a pretty good way to injure yourself. Yes. So not. Yeah. Not die. Um, but yeah, it was it was well known everywhere. And uh, it was actually a, a really famous person, probably the most famous person to ever die from Mercury is uh, Qin Shi Huang, who was the first emperor of China. Wow. And he died after consuming mercury capsules that he was provided by his court physician, a physician, big air quotes, to uh, grant eternal life. And um, that <laughs> oh, didn't no. that didn't work. It's that like work. instant fail. That's so upsetting. Well, probably not yeah. instant fail, probably like slow, painful fail. But um yeah. Yikes. And that's a, that's another thing about mercury that is so insidious, which is that, you know, it's sort of difficult to get acute mercury poisoning. You know, you have to ingest a lot in order to, um, you know, die on the spot. But habitual and long-term exposure causes all kinds of crazy deleterious effects. Um, and it's eventually can cause you to die. Um, so, so that's, I was building the nothing, nothing there. I don't know where my brain is. Mercury, watch out! Mercury, yeah, do watch out for it. Uh, and you know, like it does actually have some pretty, pretty useful applications. Um, and a lot of these are figured out during the Industrial Revolution. So I sort of referred to this earlier, maybe even a little bit before then. But it was widely used as a medicine for all kinds of things in in the old olden days, including uh, syphilis when it came to Britain from America. Mercury was commonly commonly used because it sort of worked. I mean, it made you. It, it made your hair fall off. It made you be a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit sicker, but also cleaner looking. So that was nice. Um, yeah. So that was the first sort of mercury epidemic. And it later came to light that 
uh, mercury had a lot of industrial applications. So one of the major ones is as a depilatory agent. So depilatory means removing hair. And, you know, in, in the olden days, preparing leather or preparing fur required quite a lot of hair removal. Um, so in England and in the United States, mercury was commonly used as an orange wash in order to remove different hairs and different sort of tissues from animal skins for both hats and leather. So, huh. yeah, you, I talked about how this is sort of like a cultural trope where it becomes a cultural trope. People who work with mercury are kind of like a backdoor into all of our, our Western stereotypes about who, who are crazy people. You know, we have this idea of the mad scientist or like the mad alchemist, mad pharmacist. Uh, often people were dealing with mercury and the symptoms of mercury poisoning over the long term include insanity and delusions and hallucinations and all kinds of stuff. So certainly you have those people, but then you also have people who are working with fur, like hatters, people who make hats, and furniture dealers. So when Lewis Carroll wrote Alice in Wonderland, uh, the phrase mad as a hatter was already common in Britain. So the mad hatter was like a play on that phrase. Um, because hatters were just known to be known to be insane because they work with mercury all the time. And the tea party scene they actually depict in that in that book. So we're, we we talked off off the podcast about sanitariums and one of the early ways in which they would they would deal with the with insane people because of course they had no hope of ever integrating these people into society or so they so they thought was to have these very elaborate sort of theatrical things like you know tea parties mock royal families mock pageants so the idea of a mad hatter at a tea party is like a cultural trope in britain at the at the time of the publication of that book which is so crazy because it hasn't been that long since that book came out and that is a nuance that i did not know about until we talked about it that's crazy yeah and even like even so it's said that theophilus carter who was a furniture dealer in oxford was the actual inspiration for the mad hatter so of course, the book was released with inscriptions and the model that might have been based on, I say might because this is not confirmed, uh, was a furniture dealer. And a furniture dealer is somebody else who would have a reason to be around a lot of mercury because it is used for preparing animal skins. Yeah, so that's that's one thing. And then another another application of mercury that's really interesting is it's used to develop film. So initially, silver nitrate was used to develop early daguerreotypes, which was the first kind of, of photo that was available in the 1800s. But then, uh, actually, interestingly, so uh, Daguerre, Louis Daguerre, who was the inventor of that that technique, just happened to have some mercury in his cabinet. Like you because, do, just casually? Yeah, just in, it's like, a, like in your medicine cabinet, you just have some mercury, because you do. And he accidentally spilled that on his developing photo, and he's like, not only is this way uh, cheaper than my silver nitrate, it is better so think about the idea culturally of the mad photographer and like you know the crazy fashion photographer who is you know i suspect and i have no way like this would probably be my dissertation if i if i wanted to abuse myself that way <laughs> but you know our idea of a crazy artist could come from exposure to mercury and to lead and to all kinds of stuff oh that makes so much sense i mean you think about if you have to mix your own paints all the heavy metals that you're using because uh, cadmium's in paints too, and those are all real bad for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and speaking of artists, you know, you know, mercury was was not at all thought of as a as a bad thing until probably the '60s, like later than that. Um, so Alexander Calder, who is known for his mobiles, actually produced a mercury fountain for the World's Fair in 1937 in Paris. 
And so like mercury can evaporate at room at high temperatures. So everybody who was in that ex exhibition got a heavy dose of mercury at the 1937 World's Fair. But luckily it was luckily it was 37. So it was all Nazis anyway. Um, <laughs> but although what if that led to what if that helped them go down the slippery slope to the insanity that is genocide? Oh, my God. Freakonomics would like a word. It's just so tenuous. <laughs> So tenuous, tenuous at best. Yeah, so I guess I'll, I guess I'll just very quickly touch on the idea, like how it how it came came to fall out of favor. So there's a series of studies that come out in the '60s that are basically like again and again saying mercury is not safe, it's not good for you. Uh, a lot of children get exposed to it, and children are very um, breakable, sensitive yeah. to breakable. They're breakable people. They're weak people. Um, because calomel, which contains mercury, was in teething powders until the 60s. So that was a big scandal that sort of led people to sort of pull mercury away. Um, additionally, so there was never a lot of mercury made in the United States. I mean, there was some. Um, but, you know, in, in most of the European countries where it was commonly made, it was banned. Um, the last mercury mine closed in Spain in 1992. And uh, today, most of the mercury in the world is made in China, Russia, Mexico, Indonesia, and Algeria. And there's allegedly very, very strict protocols around handling and manufacturing the substance. Like, you need to have airtight chambers and you need to dispose of the gas fumes, condense them and dispose of them in a safe way. It's not really done in the U.S. very much anymore. Um, however, and of course, if it's shipped internationally, you have to you have to do it in a safe way. You know, all very boxed in like you're like you're just like yeah. you're gesticulating. Pa package it up all tight and all stuff. that. Yeah. Um, so but stepping aside, of course, from like the idea of of uh, of international shipment inspections being inadequate, which I hope I don't have to cover because there's a lot of shipping that goes on and uh, the government of any country cannot inspect everything. Um, but basically the strength of mercury regulation is only as strong as the government under which it is produced. So the truth is that when mercury as a research chemical or mercury as an industrial chemical comes to the USA or Western Europe or, or a developed country, it is, it's usually coming in a sealed container. It's reasonably safe. It's not handled by too many people. But, you know, cinnabar is free. And it's in a lot of people's backyards in the developing world. So the truth is that if, if you're handling mercury right now and it's imported, it's probably being fired up in a backyard kiln somewhere in Indonesia or Ethiopia. And that person is making pennies to ruin their health. And most likely that mercury is being transported in plastic Coke bottles on the back of motorcycles to a shady plant. And this is especially true because mercury has applications in electronics like phones. So if you're, you know, a Chinese supplier, you want to get the lowest price possible on your mercury. And that mercury is probably going to, at some point, come into contact with some poor people. So mercury is definitely still Yay. with us in that way. To say nothing, of course, of the big elephant in the room, which is people do still use it for medicine as well. It's especially prevalent in the autism community or the autism conspiracy community, uh, oh, where, God. of course, they spread it on babies. Uh, and it's actually... Great idea. Yeah. So once again, you know, it's this moment, these, these areas of mystery, you know, where... It's far away, it's exotic, it's it's in the case of like autism or something like that, it's 
it's not understood or it's mysterious it seems like an act of god people are willing to do yep. to do anything so they they rely on this mysterious chemical the least mysterious part of which is that it is poisonous perfectly done mercury is yeah thank you thank you mercury is this week's tre- this week's trendy way to die and trendy it is oh yeah Man, I'm interested to know how much of the bad stuff in the world can be tied to the mistreatment and, like, theft of labor from poor people. Like, it's yeah, a trend. Well, I mean, that's the kind of, that's the interesting thing, because sometimes, I mean, it's both low and high. It, it hurts pe- these people the worst, but also there are these probably women in Marin County who are using it on their unsuspecting children, and they're probably wealthy and college-educated, college so... You know, pseudoscience and and silliness. We can't avoid it. And again, we can't we can't know what we're currently consuming that is crazy. That's true. Um, one thing I just remembered about mercury that you may not want to use, but I think is really funny. No, please. Um, do you remember? This was like a while back. Um, Jeremy Piven was starring in a show on Broadway, and he had to take some time off from this starring turn because per him, he contracted mercury poisoning from eating too much sushi and needed to get treatment. What really happened is obviously that he like wanted to take some time off. And so he cooked up this bizarre, like I got mercury poisoned from sushi story. Is that confirmed? But, like, is that confirmed? Like they figured out that's actually the reason. Um, I don't, I don't know that it ever got confirmed. I think, hang on, let me just quickly Google this because... Yeah, because conspiracy brain Julian is, is over here. And I'm thinking like, what if he, what if he went to a mysterious medicine woman and she was like, take mercury and you'll be a great actor, which I can totally see that happening. Here's the article, which I'm going to put in the thing, but it's, um, labor group actors equity said on Thursday, an arbitrator has cleared actor Jeremy Piven of wrongdoing in a dispute with producers of Broadway play Speed the Plow, who are upset when he left the show complaining of mercury poisoning from eating too much sushi. I wish that I could just have that level of brazenness with my excuses. I just, it's the craziest thing to say. I mean... Two months before the show ends, he leaves the show and he says that he has mercury poisoning. Um, and everyone says that is clearly nonsense and they can't um, they can't do penalties on him because I, I don't think they could prove that it was fake. This is the physical excuse that somebody uses who doesn't do any physical labor where like they're like, what can go wrong with my yeah. body? Like, what's the biggest threat to my body? And other people are like, well, I can sprain an ankle or I can pull out, a, pull my back. And he's just like... I ate too much. I ate too much sushi. All that, all that sushi just it really, really fucked, fucked me up. Me it's up. Just, yeah, it's like a Manhattanite who who only has ever shopped at Trader Joe's, like comes up with it with a grievous injury. It just it delights me. You know what? I feel like so so remiss because I didn't look up anything about mercury and fish <laughs> for this whole it's, episode. Here's the thing about mercury and fish: like, obviously, it's a huge problem, um, and that's because we, as a society, eat the wrong fish. Because um, they're upper they're upper food chain fish. Yeah, the further up the food chain, the, like, worse off you are when it comes to heavy metals because they just stick in stuff. So if you eat a lot of sardines, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. But the American palate in particular is very drawn to, like, tuna and swordfish and these big fish that, like, eat other fish. Um, And that's why. There's this wonderful chart that I'll include. It's on the uh, Wikipedia page for mercury and fish, which really I should have done. We can actually, maybe I'll do an episode on tuna because that's a good way. 
to die. I mean, I don't know if you can die. If you can, if you can die from it, then I'm so sorry, Jeremy Piven, for roasting you earlier. Look, I'm sure you can. You would have to eat a lot of tuna, and Jeremy Piven did not get like. There's no way, right? Um, now, can you can you transmit mercury to um, if you're like a woman who's cooking a fetus? Yes, you can. And I mean, cooking by like making it in your body, not like. That's not like cooking it. That's evil. But um, easy bake oven, Mm -hmm. easy bake oven, um, which is why there are suggestions that pregnant women like abstain from eating tuna. It's it's because of the mercury. There is a safe exposure level, but like it's as with everything, there are risks. Yeah. And I guess so I'm looking at this chart and it's basically I mean, hopefully you guys know a little bit about like the water cycle and the food chain and that kind of thing. Mercury, so you can intentionally mine it, and you can intentionally seek out cinnabar to make mercury. But mercury is also just distributed fully through the Earth's crust all over the place. So if you mine anything, uh, or especially if you use high temperature mining, which will melt and may cause mercury to seep into the groundwater, or if there's a volcano, or if you're burning coal, then that releases mercury into the atmosphere, which then falls in rain which then is eaten by krill, which is then eaten by larger fish and larger fish and larger fish. And the problem is that that tuna is basically a high-level predator. Like, it's a majestic hunter of the sea. It's not 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 low on the food chain. Tunas are huge, by the way. They're huge and majestic. I don't know why we kill them. Bigger than than you think. Because they taste so good. I I know that they're bad to eat, um, but I will say that tuna is some of my favorite sushi. In moderation, I'm no Yeah, kidding. right. Yeah, I guess that's maybe that's another thing. I, I don't want to moralize about, like, what you should be eating, because I did just eat a sausage and pepperoni pizza, and, and no, I don't know where any of this stuff came from. But, like... It's really, really hard to, to safely and ethically be a consumer in the modern world. It is. And that is just a fact. Um, you can't You can't really control your food supply unless you really want to like go live off the grid and grow or raise all of your food. But, but like you, that's really hard to do in 2020. So but, like, if you live in America. I'm reminded of like when I was in Japan and I was like, you know, you can buy it, you can buy a tuna there for like $10,000. And like, I think that's the level they all need to be where, you know, it's like, it's not like the can of albacore that you can buy in America. It's more like I could, I bought a tuna roll for my birthday. Like that should be the level yes. of excellence to which we which we go of course you know like that's very exclusionary i don't know man i don't have all the answers i just point out the the trouble yeah look that's all you can do is to like try and be as aware as you possibly can about the trouble but uh yeah mercury and fish is is a trendy way to get sick for sure (laughs) yeah it is wild it's almost like i wonder what we could be in a way like i no no i don't because i we talk about trendy ways to die in the past and people in the past were doing all kinds of crazy shit too but like, who is this, this this wonderful human that has access to all the knowledge and advantages of modern life, but also never eats any lead or, or like microbeads or plastic hormones and all this stuff? Like uh, somewhere in an alternate universe, is there a me that is just like 6'4 and like every gender and like just the ubermensch from Chemical Purity? Oh my God, wait, this is probably the, this is the same thought cycle that is probably being had by like a lot of california white women yes at this moment it is it leads down a slippery slope towards eugenics but it is a fun discussion to have as a thought exercise for sure Mm -hmm. it's all futile that's the thing i mean we don't know everything it's probably more fun just to give up a little bit but we don't need to give up when it comes to removing mercury from our lives like it's not that necessary yep or lead my smoky the bear ad is like it's not that necessary 
Like, stop using lead. It's moderately inconvenient, but you should do it anyway. <laughs> Love it. Trendy Ways to Die is hosted by me, Julian, with frequent contributions from my dear friends and people I admire. I also write, edit, record, and mix the show, the latter parts of which I am so sorry for. Our theme music is Hungarian Rag, recorded in 1914 by Pietro Diero. You can find it on the Internet Archive. I would have liked to include some more contemporary music, for instance, something recorded after 1920. However, the current state of U.S. copyright law is pretty terrible. If you really want to get a sense of what I'm going for, listen to Suffer for Fashion by Of Montreal and imagine my sweet voice puttering away about trendy ways to die.